Lord willing, finally uh, deal with Ezra and get through it and uh, put, him, put him to bed, as it were, and, and really get through this book now. We we're in the, the, the death throes of the book. And if you remember, last time we'll do a little bit of a recap from when we were with Ezra last time. If you remember, um, he was going through that range of emotions. We left him in chapter number 9, if you remember. First of all, he was sitting in, excuse me, astonishment. In verses 3 and 4 there, well, verses 1 to 4, he's received the news, hasn't he, that all isn't well in Jerusalem, in uh, Judea. The remnant has returned, the temple has been rebuilt, um, the mission has been accomplished, as it were. Ezra has come back with the second returning remnant, but the news comes to him that things aren't well in the land because the people have taken uh, wives from the pagans that were around and Verse 2 of Ezra 9 says, For they have taken daughters for themselves and for their sons, so the holy seed mingled themselves with the people of those lands. And God knew that what would happen if his people, who were told to be in the world but not of the world, allowed the people of the world to come in and influence, and they would do that, and they would lead them ultimately to the place of idolatry uh, where they had been. And remember, they were in the captivity. Why were they in the captivity to start with? Why had God allowed his people to be carted off into Babylon and dispersed? Because they were disobedient and they were idolaters. They had allowed idolatry to come in. I think we touched on this a few weeks ago in, in Jeremiah, you know, when the absolute disgust of what's going on in the high places, how they're worshipping, how they're, they're doing a, a, a things that are an abomination unto God in worshipping those false gods. And so the people had been in Babylon and the captivity was designed to really just help them understand who they were, help them to remember who they were and where they should be and how far they had fallen and how they had to get back to God and his ways and his, his leading, his guidance, his commandments, if you want to call it that, and live the life that God had uh, chosen for them as the elect people of God. They were to take the news that Jehovah was God, the one true God, and that salvation was by faith alone. And they were to take that to the world. They were given that duty, that obligation. That was part of the privilege. That was part of the package. Just like it is for the church today. No different. We're to take the word to the people that need the word. And that's what Israel was to be. But Israel became an island. They had separated themselves and put themselves on a holy hill. And instead of doing what they were called to do, they took what God had given them. They took the privileges they had. They became apathetic to it. And more importantly, they became abusive towards it. And they ended up in a place where they were surrounded by idolatry, fallen far away from what God had wanted for them, just caught up in things that God did not want for his people. And so God moved and he acted in that nation's life. And you say, well, you know, captivity, was, was, why would, could God not have done something else? Could he have not just sent somebody to tell them that they should repent and turn from their ways? He did. He did. What did they do with them? They rejected them. They killed them. They wouldn't hear it. 
So God's hand is forced. Why? Because he loves his children. You see, punishment's not love. But this is not punitive. The captivity was not punitive. It was about restoration. It was about restoration. And a good father chastises his children. Not to punish them punitively, but to restore them in the relationship to help them see where they're going wrong and put them on the right. And that's what God is doing in the captivity. So the people are back, you know, they should be cleansed. This returning remnant should know better. And Ezra arrives and no doubt expects better. But the news comes to him that the people have fallen far again and are going back in the cycle. This is where it started, allowing those nations to influence and, and, it, and it's just happening all over again. Rinse and repeat. Now, as believers in the church age, I'm sure you, you've, you've exampled this in your own sin patterns. Rinse and repeat. Like, how, how did I get back here? I thought I'd dealt with this. I thought I'd cut it out. And now I'm back on the merry-go-round. This is where the people were in Israel, uh, were far from God. And Ezra received this and, he, and he's sitting in astonishment in chapter number 9. He rips his clothes, he plucks his hair, he, he's just bereft at the news. And then verse 5 to 15, he, he gets on his knees before God. And we saw that he was kneeling in anguish. And, and verses 5 to 15 is this wonderful prayer of Ezra. It's an intercessory prayer. He starts off, first of all, praying and you know, talking about himself and then he quickly transitions into identifying with the sins of the nation and starts using the plural pronouns, our fathers, our priests, our God, leave us, us, our, all the way through verses 5 to 15 where he recognizes the present position of God's people. He knows that their iniquities have led them again to this place. Verse 7, he reflects on the history of God's people he says, since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities we have our kings and our priests been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land. To the sword, to captivity, to a spoil and to confusion of face as it is this day. Verses 8 and 9, Ezra recalls the recovery under the Persian kings. I love verse 8, you know. I was reading this this morning just in preparation again as I sat in, in the study and just read this, this beautiful, beautiful um, little nugget of grace we find in the Old Testament that's so applicable for us as the people of God today. Where it says, And now for a little space grace has been showed from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. A little space of grace. Isn't that beautiful? God is in the business of giving little spaces of grace that we would turn to him. Doesn't have to. Doesn't need to. He wants to. He wants to move in your life and give you that space of grace that you might turn to him. That you might flee from whatever's troubling you and bringing you down. God's there. He wants to give you eyes and lighten our eyes. Give us a little reviving in our bondage. 
verses 10 and 11, Ezra reviewed the situation. Then in verse 12 to 15, he really lays out the remedy for the people of Israel to get back to God, to get back to the basics, to listen to what God said because God knew best. And the people of God are always at their best when they're listening and obeying God. Absolutely, we are. The message really from Ezra is stop abusing the grace that God has given. That's what he's saying. And that's a pertinent message for today, is it not? We're abusers of grace. All of us. We're abusers of grace. And the grace that God gives cost him everything. We were talking about this this morning. He's a good, good father. He died upon that cross that we might experience grace. But yet we abuse it all the time. So as we pick up with Ezra now in chapter number 10, and we'll read just verse uh, number 1. Let me see if that goes up. There we go. Uh, Verse number 1 there, Ezra 10, verse 1. And that's all we're going to deal with this morning. It says this, the word of God. Now when Ezra prayed, had prayed, And when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. We're now in this transitional period that Ezra has brought this great prayer of intercession before the Lord. And now we can see the confessional element that is tied into this as, as Ezra uh, prays. And, and it's been said, and I absolutely believe this, that confession is good for the soul. It is. If you get a heavy burden on you, if you know something's not right, you've done something, you've, you know, you've taken, you've stolen, you've harmed somebody, you're at enmity with somebody, you've wronged them. And it's weighing on you. It's good to confess. It's good to confess. Now, let me, I'm not talking about setting up confessional booze. But I'm talking about, you know, just letting that go and, and, and sharing that burden, number one, with the Lord and then with others, with, with my kids. Um, I still do this. And, and thankfully, I say thankfully, but we don't have to do it as much. But I used to have this little thing I would do with the kids especially in my last ministry when I used to pick them up from school uh, every day, we used to do this little thing where we used to call it a daddy chat chat. And the daddy chat chat is a little space of grace (laughs) where they could share anything that was burdening them, anything that was on their conscience that they wanted to get out, and it was a safe space, right? So even though part of me would say that needs dealt with, it was a safe space, Right? And the safe space meant they could share anything. So, um, again, if, if, if you speak to them now, and I, I say, do you want a daddy chat chat? They just look at me and go, you are cringe. What are you talking about? <laughs> they don't want to talk to you. But Addison, particularly, um, likes to get things off her chest and confess. So we're in the car one day, and uh, we're driving along. And I said, Addison, do you want a daddy chat chat? And she's adamant she didn't which usually means she does okay so as a master of reverse psychology and interrogation techniques i was a- <laughs> i was able to uh, coax her and then so she she got all emotional bless her she's, she's like this 
I've got something I want to share. All right. Okay, okay. This is a safe space. Share it. At this time, she was doing swimming lessons. She was only about, probably about seven, six or seven. She said, this, is, this was her confession. She said, Dad, when I go to the swimming, sometimes I pee in the pool. <laughs> but, <laughs> at that point, I said, you dirty... No, I didn't... <laughs> And you know what? She felt better after that. I wasn't particularly looking for that. You know, she could have kept that. But that was weighing on her. That was weighing on her. Confession is good for the soul. It's good from a personal point of view. But also, it's good from a a, a corporate, a a body point of view. You know, being somebody who's willing to come forward and, and confess when things aren't right. It's good for you individually. It's good for the soul. But it's also good for the saints. It's good for others around you to see that we don't live perfect lives as Christians. I know you look at me and think, he must be absolutely perfect in this walk. No? Eric? No? No? Listen, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. My goodness me. You know, there's days in my life where I behave abominably. I just do but listen, I'm saved by grace. I'm under the blood. And it's good for other people to say, you know, when I have done wrong, and I do do wrong, when I say wrong, and there's times I will say wrong, there is times that I will upset you. Believe it or not, it's going to happen. There's times that you upset me. Probably more times you upset me than I upset you, but... <laughs> Am I joking? But listen, we're, we're human. We have a sin nature. We've got the old tempers. The old attitudes, and they can creep in very easily. But it's good when we, somebody comes forward, especially from leadership. And, you know, you don't want your leaders every weekend on their hands and knees saying, I'm a terrible person. It's not that. But you want to see that we're flesh and blood, right? You want to see that we're, as the body of Christ, we walk through the same battles. We face the same trials. We face the same troubles. We're human. And when we confess, you know what, I have done wrong, I've misspoken, and I want to apologize for that. I want to confess, I've confessed it before God, that's good for the soul, and I want to confess it before others, that's good for the saints. That builds the community of God where we can be open and honest with one another. Now, let me caveat that. There should be some stuff that stays between you and the Lord. But there are others. There are things that are good to confess. And, you know, Ezra here is going to show us and, and, and lead us in this kind of example. And, and remember what I said about Ezra. I said when we're talking about him, that, and, and talking about leadership, that a good leader is one who knows the way, shows the way, and goes the way. You know, that's the, again, I get back to threes. You know, I'm, I'm a Trinitarian. All things are in threes. But that's it. It's not just knowing it. It's not just saying it, but it's, it's doing it. And that's what good leadership is. And, and Ezra is a, an example of a good leader. And we're going to see this principle that confession is good for the soul, but it's also good for the saints in play in Ezra chapter 10 and verse number 1. Here's the first thing I want to say about this this morning as we look at it. I want you to see, first of all, the confession of 1. This is just the start of Ezra chapter 10 verse 1. It says, when now, now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down. So Ezra had prayed, 
He had brought it before the Lord. And we've read that in Ezra chapter number 9. Then it says, when he had confessed. What is he confessing? He's confessing the sins of the nation, ultimately. He's identifying with the body, the assembly. We're going to call it that. The ecclesia of the Old Testament. That's the gathering of God's people. He's identifying with them. And he's confessing. And he's acknowledging the depth of the depravity of the people of God before God. He's not hiding it. He's not covering over it. He's not trying to run away from it. He's acknowledging it and he's confessing it before God. And he, you know, in chapter 9 we've seen it's a result of them falling away from what God has asked them to do and how he has asked them to behave as his chosen people. And he has a right to do that. Absolutely God does. So Ezra's gone through the right motion. Praying, he's confessing, and that's good for the soul. It's good to bring it before God. But I want you to notice there the next little phrase where it says, casting himself down, and then it says, before the house of God. So now we're in the the Old Testament. We're in the Old Testament. The temple has been rebuilt. So the house of God, in Old Testament terms, Old Testament economy, we'll use that word if you like, Old Testament, this dispensation if you really want to go down that route, is that the house of God is the temple of God. That's where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, did reside until the people uh, just sinned so drastically that the glory of God departs up the Mount of Olives and ascends to heaven. But it's the house of God. And here Ezra is is praying, he's weeping, he's casting himself down before the house of God. It's at the temple that he is doing this. This is the centerpiece of Judaism. It's a hive of activity, even in this returning remnant. They're all going to be there, around there. What does that mean for this confession of one? What does it mean for the weeping and anguish of Ezra as a leader of the people? What does that mean in terms of the impact? What is he showing the others that are around him? He's showing them the way. Because he knows the way, and he's going the way. This is public. Ezra is bereft. He is on his hands and knees and he is praying and he is weeping and he's casting himself down. And, you know, not that others would see him, but he's doing it to God. And because of that, others are seeing him. What am I saying? This wasn't a hidden confession, it was a public confession. Ezra's identifying with the people and he's bringing the people before God publicly. He saw the problem. He hasn't papered over the cracks. He knows that there is a spiritual issue within the people of God. And it would be easy for Ezra to paper over those cracks. It would be easy for Ezra to just even go into his private time of prayer and bring it before God and not really confront the people with this sin and not confront the people with the issue that was at the heart of what was going on in the life of God's chosen people. But Ezra doesn't do this. He brings it before the house of God and by extension he brings it to the people of God. And what happens is we have the confession of one that's going to lead us to our second point. And we get two points this morning, so fall out of my Trinitarianism. 
But here we have the confession as one. Let's read on in Ezra chapter 10 verse 1. So Ezra's prayed, he's confessed, he's wept, he's cast himself down before the house of God. And then what happens? There assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. Now I love this. I love this. Because what do we see? There's three types of people here. Who are they? Come on, you're good scholars. Tell me the three types of people that assemble around Ezra as he's bringing this before the house of God. Who do we have? Number one. Men. Number two. Women. Number three. Are there any other types of people? No. No. What does that mean? It means they're all there. God has reached the people. Through Ezra's confession of one, it brings the people together as one as they weep sore before God. They are aware now of truly the depths of what's going on within the heart of God's people. And and, and it's beautiful. This is the assembly. This is the body coming together, the women, the children and the men. All common and realizing that there's no respecter of persons with God. Men, women, children, whoever it is, we need our sins forgiven before God. We need God's grace in our life. No matter who you are here this morning, no matter what age you are, no matter what background you have, you're a sinner from birth. That's who you are. And you need God. You need God. So here the body gathered together, and I couldn't help but think about this aspect of them gathering together, you know, men and women and children, and thinking about our church context, and thinking about New Testament church, and my, my mind went, as it does go to in these things, to Hebrews chapter 10, turn there. These are familiar verses, but I want to understand this, maybe in a little bit of a different context than what we usually do. And, and these verses are true. They're, they're true for the church gatherings. They're true for the church people. We can't pick and choose what the Bible says. It is what it is. God says what he means and he means what he says. That's simple truth. You know, it doesn't matter what commentators say in this. It doesn't matter what scholars of old say in this. It doesn't matter what other people say in this. It matters what God says. And what he says in Hebrews 10, verse 24, and this is one of these one another commandments. You'll find these throughout the New Testament. These one another. You cannot do a one another commandment without one another. Christian life is a community project. It's to be done together, not apart. Hebrews 10, 24 says this, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That, that's truth for church today. There's no getting away from that. And pastors will always use that to encourage people to come to church. And, you know, I do want to encourage people to come to church. I want to encourage people to attend as much as they're able possible to uh, attend. But not because I have said so. Not because they are feeling that they have to follow rules and regulations. Come because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you love his word. That's it. It's a hard thing. 
the attitude before the act. Because that's what God sees. But we often think about this as encouraged and, and, and good works. But one of these good works, I want to put it to you this morning, can be confession. That you, by your life and your lifestyle and your willingness to be open and honest and, and, and see somebody that's struggling with something and come along and say, Do you know what, I had that issue, I dealt with that issue, you know, it was, it, there was a lot of trouble and there was a lot of trial, but God was with me, you know, and I confessed it, God forgave me, I was able to move on in my Christian life and he's willing to do the same for you. You know, the assembling together can encourage people to get themselves right with God. As much as we think about you know, doing these good works, one of the good works is confession. It's part of it. And that's what's happening here. There's a move of conviction amongst God's people. Why? Because those at the top, the leader of the nation, Ezra, that respected a uh, uh, teacher of God's word, that scribe, that one who was gifted, was willing to come before the people publicly and fall down upon his knees in anguish to God and confess the sins of the people, including himself in that. And the people saw that and they were moved by that. And the community comes together as God moves in each other's lives, as they assemble together. They're moved on to good works. And if you can imagine, put your mind's eye back to this. Let's try and think of the scene. It's going to begin with Ezra and maybe a few. And then others are going to hear about it. And what happens? They start to come. And all of a sudden, the news is going out with around the people that there's a move of God happening. There's a cry to repentance. There's a cry of confession. And the people gather. And then the children. And then the wives hear about it. And then what you have is the people of God together confessing as one, understanding they have fallen from God. They have abused His grace. And they need God again. Woo. That's where revival starts. That's where revival starts. But it takes the leaders, those that can influence. That's what leaders do. And they should influence. In a godly way. In a right way. But Ezra's a good leader and he's shown the way. Like I said, he could have just ignored it. We're back in Jerusalem. Let's not worry about it. It's a minor matter. We're much better than we were. And this is what happens in churches today. That, that there's, a, there's a failure from leadership to acknowledge when things aren't right. Because they look and say, well, you know, there's money in the bank. There's people in the pews. We've got ministries here. We've got ministries there. Let's not rock the boat. But good leaders should always go back to God's word. What does God see? In his people. Not that the leader steps back and says, Oh, you heathen in the pews. No, that he comes down and identifies with the people and comes before God and confesses when things aren't right. Now, if you, you think about this concept, confession as one, or of one, leading confession as one, and think about the movements. Think about the, the great <coughs> movements of the past. I'm not picking on anybody, but we'll, we'll, we'll pull out Methodism. And, and, you know, we've, we've watched how far they've fallen away from God's word. But what if the leaders 
would step up before God and confess the sins of those people. Identify with it and say, God, we've fallen from where you want us to be. And they confessed as one. How would that affect those under them? Would they start to feel the spirit of confession and understanding that they have fallen from God? I think a lot of them would. Think about the modern movements that you know, are, are, have, have thousands of followers. New Apostolic Reformation and all these other trendy things that are taking people into tremendous error. What if those leaders would today, this very day, would stand before their people and confess and cry to God in anguish and say, you know what, we have got a badly wrong. We have allowed the world and the spirit of the world to come into the church and influence the church. We are sinners before you, God. We need you and we are confessing our sin and we're going to get back to the book. How many others would follow in that movement? And say, you know what? My eyes are open to this. Confession of one can lead to confession as one. So, you know, we're taking big examples there, but just let's talk about us as a church. Are we willing to be honest and open about the things that aren't right within our body? Are we willing to confess that? And was I, as a leader, willing to say, do you know what? There's so much great things about this church, but there's, there's something that needs. I'm not saying that there is, but am I willing to do that? I think if I am, and I'm honest before God, and I always examine ourselves and our church and what we do before the Word of God, then I would be willing, Lord willing, to confess as one that would lead to confession as one. That we would identify those things in our lives that aren't right. Starts with one and it can lead to many. In this case it was Ezra. And that confession is good for the soul, but it's also good for the saints. That's the point I'm making this morning. I want to read you this and we're going to be done this morning. This is an extract from... Uh, Harry Arnside, a book called uh, Illustrations of Biblical Truth. And he said this, and I'm going to read it all because it's, it's useful and helpful, I think. He says this, There is nothing that so takes the joy out of life like unconfessed sin on the conscience. I once heard the late Dr. F. E. Marsh tell on one occasion that he was preaching on this question and urging upon his hearers the importance of confession of sin and wherever possible, the restitution for wrong done to others. At the close of the message, a young man, a member of the church, came to him with a troubled countenance. Pastor, he explained, you've put me in a sad fix. I've wronged another, and I am ashamed to confess it or try to put it right. You see, I'm a boat builder, and the man I work for is unsaved. I've talked to him often about his need for Christ and urged him to come and hear you preach, but he scoffs and ridicules it all. Now I have been guilty of something that, if I should acknowledge it to him, will ruin my testimony forever. He went on to say that some time ago he started to build a boat for himself in his own yard. In this work, copper nails are used because they do not rust in the water. These nails are quite expensive and the young man had been carrying home quantities of them to use in the job. He knew it was stealing. 
But he tried to solve his conscience by telling himself that the master had so many, he would never miss them. And besides, he wasn't being paid all that he thought he deserved. But this sermon had brought him face to face with the fact he was just a common thief who's dishonest, who for, dis- for whose dishonest actions there was no excuse. But, said he, can I go and tell my boss and tell him what I have done to, or offer to pay for those which I have stolen or return the rest? If I do, he'll think I'm a hypocrite. And yet those copper nails are digging into my conscience. And I know I shall never have peace until I put this matter right. For weeks the struggle went on. Then one night he came to Dr. Marsh and exclaimed, Pastor, I've settled for the copper nails and my conscience is relieved at last. What happened when you confessed to your employer? Asked the pastor. Oh, he answered. He looked at me funny, then exclaimed, George, I always did think that you were just a hypocrite. But now I begin to feel like there's something in this Christianity after all. Any religion that would make an honest workman come back and confess that he had been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. Dr. Marsh asked if he could use this story and was granted permission. Sometime afterward, he told it in another city. The next day, a lady came up to him and said, Doctor, I have had copper nails on my conscience too. Dr. Marsh replied, well, you don't look like a boat builder. No, she said, but I'm a book lover and I've stolen a number of books from my friend who gets far more than I could ever afford. I decided last night I must get rid of the copper nails, so I took them back to her today and confessed my sin. Cannot tell you how relieved I am. She forgave me and God has forgiven me. I'm so thankful the copper nails are not digging into my conscience anymore. Ironside says that he's told this story many times and almost inevitably people have come to him afterwards telling of copper nails in their lives in one form or another. Ironside said at one occasion he shared it at a high school chapel service and the next day the principal saw him and said that the amount of pens that had been returned was phenomenal. Reformation and restitution do not save. Let's, let's be clear about that when it comes to this concept. But where one is truly repentant and has come to God in sincere confession, you'll want to do your best to put things right with others. You know, confession is contagious. And that's what we've seen in that little illustration. That one person was willing to confess to God that something wasn't right to then confess to the wrong one. And by that, then others were led to confession. What's the point of making? What's the challenge of making? Number one, confession of one will lead to confession as one if we as the people of God are honest about the things of God. And number two, here's what I want to say to you and challenge, and challenge us all. If there is copper nails in your life, if there is something between you and the Lord that needs confessed, do it. Confess it. Be like the psalmist. Be like David, Psalm 51. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
And that's what sin does. It's ever before you. It's a burden. It's a weight. You can't say anything but it. And David, in that wonderful psalm, he brings it all to God. He confesses his sins. He understands who he is before God. He understands that God's the only one that can help him. And then when he says, cleanse me from my unrighteousness. And then he says, then I will teach others thy way. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Then I will teach others thy way. Confession of one leads to confession as one. So, beloved, here's the challenge. Don't leave sin unconfessed. It will fester, it will grow, it will burden you, and ultimately it will break you. But God is here, and he wants to hear. Let's close. Turn to 1 John chapter number 1, verse 9. This is Christian accident and emergency. One John one nine, Christian any, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise of God. If you come to him this morning and you confess, he will not leave you hanging. He will leave you clean. That's our God. Confession is good for the soul and it's also good for the saints if we would be honest and open before God and who we are before him. Let's pray.